All right, Luke chapter 7 is where we're at. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. So I need to know if anyone in the room is willing to share a nickname that they currently have or they had growing up, and then the reason behind their, their nickname. I just saw a chuckle from someone. I won't embarrass him, but, uh, but let's hear it. Yeah. Russell. Explain why Russell is there. First of all, tell us your name. Ben. Okay. So tell us why your, your nickname is Russell. Uh-huh. Just authoritatively called it out. Sounds like Ben. And so it stuck. So your mom is a few rows in front of you. How does she feel about she carefully, your parents carefully chose your name and now most of the youth group knows you by something else. Is that a source of, of conflict or is that okay? You might need to have that conversation, bro. All right. Uh, anyone else? Anyone else have a nickname? Thank you, Ben. Yeah, Karen. Wink. Why is your, why was your nickname Wink or why is it Wink? Winkler. Oh, so you just kind of incorporated that. Nice. I like that. Anyone else? Yeah. As hillbilly. Do we want to ask why? <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Bridge, did you have one? Zip. Zip. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Those are great. Thank you for sharing those. Those are really good. So here's what we're going to do this morning. This text, we're going to look at a pretty lengthy encounter uh, in, in this. In this uh, we're going to close out chapter 7. Um, and we're going to look at reputations. Not only, not only your reputation, uh, but how you assign reputations, what you think about other people. That, that question is going to come up. We're also going to look at how you manage debt. Uh, vicariously through this story, through this encounter, as we kind of get to peek in uh, through, through Dr. Luke's account, we're going to get to ask this question about how we manage debt. And then finally, how deep is your love? I recognize that's a song from the 70s, but we're going to talk about levels of love and, and sort of have this mirror back on us about our own level of love. Chapter 7 has been Dr. Jesus making house calls. It's God through Jesus Christ showing us what he's like in going to people and meeting their specific needs. You want to talk about reputations. Um, Jesus uh, was known in, in some circles as a doctor. He was a healer. He wasn't a physician, a family physician in that traditional sense, but he went around healing people, and he obviously gained some sort of reputation because people came to him with their illness. So the good doctor, as we've already seen, um, is, is pronouncing not just words of blessing, but displaying power over these different ailments. And every one of these ailments hits us today. The good doctor heals diseases. The good doctor Jesus brings the dead to life. The good doctor Jesus overpowers our doubt. Remember from last week, John the Baptist is languishing in prison, and he refutes his doubt and thereby restoring his faith. And this morning, we're going to see that the good doctor forgives our sin. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus, and upon seeing him, kind of the start of Jesus' public ministry, he's been growing up in a pretty obscure home, doing probably pretty obscure work, and he comes on the scene, and John the Baptist, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, hey, look, there he is. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How rich is that to us a couple thousand years later, having read Acts, having read Romans, having understood all the implications that went on with the cross of Jesus Christ? Talk about a reputation, talk about a nickname, the Lamb of God. Only after his death and resurrection would it be fully realized. 
Here's some interesting things about this encounter. Only Luke of the four gospel records this event. Uh, this is the first of three, um, you could call them dining with Pharisees. That could be a fun, you know, um, Netflix show or something. Uh, these are, this is the first of three dining with Pharisees episodes that Luke records. And each of them share this characteristic. Each of them are kind of lengthy and each of them involves some conflict. So we're going to see two more of these as we keep going through Luke. Interestingly, Luke 5 records Jesus dining with sinners and Pharisees are crashing the party. Here we have Jesus dining with a Pharisee and sinner, uh, a, a sinner comes and crashes the party. It's really interesting as we read through Luke. Luke is especially aware and takes notice of the outsider. He's constantly mentioning how the outsiders get in. Those who think they are far from God may actually be those who are closest to God. And Luke shows a particular care of women. The fact that a woman is the center of a narrative in this gospel, Luke is wanting to highlight Jesus' concern for women. Mind you, very countercultural to what, what the system of, of, of the day was. Look at verse 34 uh, that we looked at last week, and what you see is this, that, that this is a case in point of, of what was going on, of, of what his reputation with people was, and here it is, Jesus reaching out to a sinner, and what does he get? He gets criticism from the Pharisee. So it's exactly what he said in verse 34. And here's kind of the, the, the contrast. We see the lavish love of the woman contrasted with the really stingy love of the Pharisee. So what we're going to see is we're going to see love and welcome and need sort of on some different measures. So just sort of pay attention to that. With that, let me read starting in verse 36 and just through the end of the chapter. So it's a bit of a lengthy passage. I would encourage you to follow along. I read from the ESV. That's what's sitting in front of you. If you read from a different translation, it may read a little bit differently. But here we go. One of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment." Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he would have, uh, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money letter had two debts, uh, two, two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have answered, you have, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? God, just now as we have read your word, would you give us insight and illumination into what you would want to say to us? God, we're convinced there are things we need to know or feel or believe or do based on the living and active word of God that we just read. In Jesus' name, amen. How are you known? What's your reputation? A little riddle could be this. As you enter a room, what part of you enters a room long before the rest of you and lingers in conversation long after you leave? It's your reputation. It's what you're known for. Don't call this out. Sometimes I ask questions. I want actual answers. Just ponder this for a second. What is a good name worth? What is a good name worth? Some of you are business owners. And so you might think about your personal name, but you almost also might think about your company name. What is a good name worth? Powerful question here on Father's Day. Proverbs 22.1 says this. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. How many have made a bad trade on that in this life? And favor is better than silver or gold. What we see in this passage is some distinct reputations, and they vary by person. And it's not just the reputation that Luke is giving to us. We're actually getting to see inside the thoughts of what people are assigning to other people, what they're known for. So let's take Simon first of all. Simon knew who he was. He labeled the woman a sinner. He figured out who Jesus was and wasn't. Decided, nope, he's not a prophet. We later see him refer to him as a teacher, which would be sort of a a lower status. But Simon's making judgments. He's he's realizing clearly who someone is and who someone isn't. How about the woman? She knew her label really, really well. She probably heard it often. She also knew the type of person Simon was. It wasn't lost on her that he was a Pharisee. So she understood really clearly how people on his team treated people with her label. And yet, what was it about her? Like, what drove her to go in and crash this dinner party, uninvited, to be near Jesus? What kind of courage mustered that? What was going on inside of her life? There's lots of things we don't know because the text doesn't tell us. But there's a sense that she has seen in Jesus a reputation that says that she's somehow welcome. That she won't be reprimanded for coming and doing this great risky thing, socially risky thing. How about Jesus? Jesus had some sort of reputation It's a really curious thing that Simon would even invite him over for dinner. Uh, Fellowship and food and dinner and sharing a meal is pretty important in our culture. It's actually a huge theme in Scripture that we worship and that food, good food and good conversation and fellowship, it's not that the worship service ends here. It's that every meal that we share can capture some of what we do here in in the commonality of just a regular basic meal uh, shared but, but. between people. But in this day and age, to eat with someone, more important or less important than today's culture? What do you think? More important. Actually, vastly so. 
you could do or undo your reputation with a single meal. So it's actually curious to me that Simon the Pharisee, who's often at odds with Jesus, extends the invitation to have Jesus come to his house to have a meal with him. It's also noteworthy that Jesus accepts the invitation. Even though, again, typically these are to think far left liberal and far right conservative, but sort of on a much bigger, grander degree, and they're not relatives. They don't have to spend Thanksgiving together. This is just an invite, and they said yes, and here they are. So you can kind of feel some some tension in there already. Jesus was a reputation that did then and continues now to generate much debate. And dialogue. It's interesting how you could talk about God all day long. The moment you bring up Jesus, if you were to say, um, <clears throat> I love God versus I love Jesus, there's an interesting shift to the conversation. Jesus's reputation to this day stirs up conversa- conversation and, uh, and sometimes not so pleasant dialogue. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus assessed both Simon and the sinner. Remember from last week that Jesus is a surprising Savior? If Jesus hasn't surprised you yet, just wait. He will surprise you. As you begin to follow Jesus, he will surprise you in ways that delight you and terrify you, that utterly bring clarity to what's going on and will utterly confuse you. Jesus is the surprising Savior. And both were surprised as to how they were cast in his little story. So Simon sees himself... As the gracious host, he clearly sees himself as able to distinguish between a sinner and a non-sinner. When Jesus asks a question, do you see his answer? The answer says this, um, I suppose it's the one who's been forgiven more money. I think you'd be a little gun shy if you had any sense of Jesus' reputation. Didn't he often uh, ask a question and end up humiliating the person who was answering the question? Yes. So he goes, ah, I think it's this. Like, that seems to make sense. And then what does Jesus say? You have judged rightly. Ding, gold star. Pharisees love gold stars. It was publicly declared. He's like, sweet, my superior got that one wrong, but I got it right. So he sees himself as a gracious host. Here he's inviting, trying to understand this sort of rebel rabbi and figure out what's going on. But he also sees himself as judge, seeing things clearly. It never dawned on him that maybe a prophet of God would be touched by a sinner. Isn't that shocking? Like he immediately puts that in the category. This was the theology of the day. If he knew what sort of woman that was, that she's a sinner, he would never allow himself to be touched by her. In short, what we see with Simon is he sees himself as the hero. And surprise of surprise, Jesus tells a cute little story, and it turns out Simon's the villain. Simon's not the hero of the story. Now, how about the woman? The woman is equally surprised. She clearly thinks less of herself. She's anointing feet. She's coming from behind. Uh, She's immediately overcome with emotion. She's not even invited here, but musters the courage to to get near Jesus. It seems to me, as I've sat with this text, I think she's beginning to see who she really is since she feels she can approach Jesus. I think her reputation, isn't it true that you can be born again? God could take your old self and you could die to it. You can be born again. 
and much of your family, many of your coworkers, maybe your neighbors, the people you've had run-ins with in the past, they continue to call you by your label of the old you. They continue to see you of what you're known for there. You know there's been a radical shift. I'm loved by God. That's who I am. That's the most important thing about me. And I used to be defined by this title, by what I wore, by what I did or didn't do. I now know the truest thing about me is this. And yet, you'll still be thought of in past tense by other people. Clearly, this woman has something going on inside of her life. And clearly, she's still held in the prison of her past sins and choices and reputation by this man, Simon. What's interesting, what's surprising is she is cast in the story as the hero. She gets praised for her faith and who she is becoming. Something Jesus does in the story is he highlights the needs of each of them and he contrasts what they're focused on. What does Simon seem to be focused on? He seems to be focused on his self-righteousness. Sure, I have needs. We all have needs. But his are small. He's focused on all he's done for God and all that he produces for God. The woman's focused on her great gift that was given to her, forgiveness. Let me ask you this question. One of the things we're called to as Christians is to bear witness to Jesus to be bright lights for people. In fact, a part of the reason, I think a main reason, in fact, yes, we're being sanctified, but one of the main reasons that I'm convinced we don't just get born again and the moment we bring someone up out of the waters of baptism, they don't just go, like shooting right up to return to God, is we have a mission here on earth to be a light to a dark world, right? So we're to open our mouth and bear witness to what Jesus Christ is about. So let me ask you this, how would our evangelism change? Evangelism is a churchy word for sharing, just sharing the good news of what God's up to. And we start with that, not maybe with a theological treatise on the subject, but on our own life. And I used to be living for my life. I used to be enslaved in this sin. God set me free. How might our evangelism change if we get our head around this encounter? Let me ask you this question. What happens when people receive God's debt forgiveness without a good understanding of their debt. In other words, you share the good news with them, but you minimize the bad news. What kind of Christian, what kind of disciple, like give me some adjectives out loud that would be produced if people receive God's great love and forgiveness without really understanding the fine that's been paid, the depth of their depravity, what the bad news is, they've only heard mostly good news. Give me some adjectives that might come back as as to describe what, what kind of follower might that produce generally. Any thoughts? Shallow. I wrote that one down. What else? Ungrateful. Ungrateful? Yeah. What else? Arrogant. What else? Selfish. Selfish? Yeah. Maybe lukewarm could be another one. Maybe a fair-weathered friend to Jesus. 
Man, as long as there's some freebies coming, I'm still here. But when things get tough, I'm going right back to my own self-righteousness to stand on, to depend on. As I began to make this list, here's what I thought. It results in polite potlucks, but no real passion. Every one of the words you just used in your adjective showed up on my list as well. I gave a few minutes of thought to this. And as I looked at that list and I thought about polite potlucks without passion, I thought, what a frightening, scary description of much of the affluent West church right now. That we'll gather for a meal. Our heart won't really be in it oftentimes. We'll come and do our things. There will be a lot of politeness. But there will also be a lot of skepticism, a lot of self-reliance. Here's the remedy. You become more in love with God, more grateful to God, when you see your own sinfulness. I don't want to make this next portion about pitting neighborhood Bible church versus all those other churches. Because we stand on the shoulders of Valley Church in Cupertino, which has its own pitfalls and hang-ups, but does some things really, really well and got us started in some really, really good directions. But let me tell you something that for 12 years we've made a point of, and you can thank God for providing shepherds and elders who talk openly about this, for having people in the congregation that spur this on, that listen in the Holy Spirit, not just expect the speaker to speak in the Holy Spirit. And that is this, we talk about sin here. The very thing many churches are shy about talking about is the very thing that will actually prompt more love for God. You see, the the formula is this. If we talk less about sin and less about sort of that dark stuff and that first part of Romans, which is really kind of a downer, first three chapters in Romans, just kind of a downer. If we can kind of gloss over that and get to the good stuff, we'll draw even more people. We'll have a wider audience to come and fall in love with God. Friends, the reason you're uncomfortable in church, I hope regularly, because we preach the Bible here. And the Bible is like a mirror and it shows us our sinfulness. And what that does is it highlights the beauty of the cross. It makes us shockingly aware, afresh, week after week. My goodness, I'm in need. Every ounce of me is in need. And I'm not talking past tense. I've been a Christian for 25 years and I'm hit afresh with a song that just says, you really are a good, good father. I love that last week I had a conversation with someone in this room and service had just ended and their eyes were just wet with tears. That's a physiological response to the gospel. It says, man, this is still good news and this person's been a Christian for a long time. That's a good sign. Isn't the cross distasteful and wasteful if it's not absolutely necessary? When you think about what happened on Good Friday and Easter of the Christian story. If our sin problem goes away with an I'm sorry and a little bit of therapy and maybe some community service, then the cross is a joke. The cross is just kind of disgusting. In fact, what happens is you don't worship Jesus, you feel sorry for Jesus. What a waste. Many have rejected this kind of Christianity for its shallowness. 
It's sort of a self-improvement God. It's an add-on to what you're already trying. Hear me. I reject this too. If people have an understanding of that that's what Christianity is about, that that's what Jesus came and that's what paying for sin means, we need to clarify that. That is not what that means. It's the most loving thing to show someone their depravity and their need for God. In fact, dying to your old life and being born again only makes sense if, if, if you're at the very end of yourself. If you come to an understanding that you are without hope in this life, that you can't possibly make right everything you've screwed up and you are helpless to save yourself, then the cross becomes the most precious, beautiful event in history. And the resurrection is something that isn't just a historical fact you think on once in a while. You sing about it with tears in your eyes because it's the very thing Christ is forming in you, that he's resurrecting old and dying parts of your own life. Charles Spurgeon said this, as salt, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. This is what makes the good news such good news. So no matter our reputation, either to ourselves, we can deceive ourselves, can't we? Or what we project to others, hello social media. And no matter what others have labels for us, God alone is the judge. And the Bible makes clear in no uncertain terms, there is coming a day of judgment when we will stand naked before the moral judge of the universe. And in that moment, our mouth will be stopped. Romans says it this way, that the the law of God shuts the mouth of everyone. What is that talking about? It's the fact that as soon as someone uh, feels a sense of guilt or trying to cover up, their lips start flapping. You guys are parents too. I know know how this goes. We just start making excuses. God, it was this woman you gave me in the garden, right? I mean, there's always an excuse, a shift of blame, a rationale. One day our mouth is going to be shut. And we will stand on the resume of Jesus Christ before a moral holy God or we will stand on our own and be judged for our actions and our inactions, our thoughts. It's here in this moment that the cross becomes so valuable. Our understanding of Jesus determines our welcome of Jesus. So the second thing I want you to think on is this. How do you welcome Jesus? Here's what Simon thought. Simon thought that he was politely keeping his label to himself. Right? He had judged inside. If you notice the text, Simon thinks a thought, and then Jesus answers him. It's not that Simon spoke the thought. Jesus answered what he was thinking. Now, was that Jesus... As God reading Simon's thoughts? Maybe. Couldn't it be possible that Jesus in his humanity just read what was going on? I mean, you and I, if we were paying half attention, some of you are gifted by God to be supernaturally sensitive to other people and where they're at. And some of you would have picked up on this very, very quickly. That Simon thought he was politely keeping his label to himself, but his welcome is a dead giveaway. You know what he's done? He's given a bare minimum greeting. 
He calls him polite teacher, but nothing more. He doesn't ascribe anything more to him. There's no kiss of welcome. He even denies him the common courtesy of washing his feet. Again, people walked around in sandals. There's dusty roads. It's just a common thing to come and, and, and get to, to wash your feet. All of that was absent from Simon's welcome. How did the sinner welcome Jesus? Well, she welcomed Jesus lavishly. The kiss, the tears, the foot washing, the anointing. Every one of these is rich with meaning. And she's doing all of it and pouring it out. We don't know why the tears started. Think about this. Maybe she had been denied welcome just like that time and time again. Maybe her life is a lifetime of unwelcome. And she can't bear to see her Savior unwelcome that way. So she gets to work welcoming him giving him not only the basic necessities of a welcome, but in a lavish way. You know, even if you don't have great language for this, every person in this room can feel when they are really welcomed well and when they're sort of being tolerated, even if the external actions are very, very similar. And here's what's true, is that there's not necessarily one specific thing that does this, but it's sort of this composite picture. We might show up at a place, think about the last time you were really received well in someone's home. I doubt it was one specific thing that they did, and it may not be that they did that much different than other people, but it wasn't just a handshake, and it wasn't just a second handshake, and it wasn't just looking in the eyes, and it wasn't just a smile. There was something communicated in that greeting that said, man, I am delighted. I've been looking forward to you being in my home. Welcome. And when you came in, it wasn't just that your coat was taken or your purse was offered to put in a closet or something else and you were offered something to drink, but the way that that was done. And then what you can do is you can take, you can sort of form this composite picture of all that was done or not done and you can feel, again, even if you don't have language for it, you can feel, man, I'm just loved in this place. I'm really welcomed. And there's nothing like it. Or you can tolerate a meal and kind of have this nagging sense that you're an interruption to the person's day. That they did these things, that they kind of politely did these things, but, but you feel tolerated right now, not welcomed. I had someone recently talk to me about uh, a new church they're going to. They moved away. One of our specialties here in the Silicon Valley as a church is we export people. We, we get the imports of people who come here for the job. They move here for a while. We get to do life with them and, and learn from them and teach them. And then what happens is they move away because it's really expensive to live here. So we've been doing that for the last 12 years. And I had a conversation recently with someone who's moved away, and they said this. They said, I'm going to try and say this with as dry of an eyes as I can tell you this, Dave. But keep going with community groups. And then he regurgitated something to me that we said over and over. In fact, we did a two-week series on this, but it wasn't just a two-week series for two weeks' sake. He said this, you know, you taught us through repetition, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's Romans 15, 7. It goes on to say this, to the glory of God. And he said with tears in his eyes, please keep preaching that message. You didn't beat us over the head with it, but I get it. Repetition is what actually sticks. So welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. 
Keep pressing in on getting people together. At my new church, we are trying and we can't break in. We're the new people. And it's just been really, really hard to break in. So church, hear me. It's really important that we welcome well. One of the great gifts of my sabbatical is I was a new person at a church for about seven or eight weeks in a row. Now, I happen to be an extrovert who loves the church, loves Christians, has pretty boundless grace because God's given me a lot of grace for the church's failings at welcoming in. But you know what? I can say honestly, in fact, my wife and I drove home talking about it. I was welcomed well one time. Um, By the way, I went to my friend's churches, people I dearly, dearly love. I was not going with a clipboard. I wasn't going to evaluate. I wasn't a secret plant. None of that. In fact, I had none of that on my mind. But I went and I thought, wow, I was welcomed well here this morning. And it highlighted about six or seven other churches where I wasn't. We're a big family. It's obvious that we're new. It's not like we sneak into a church. (laughs) So, So let me just say this. Let me bring this message back to us. To the glory of God, let the way that Jesus welcomed you be your standard of welcoming other people. It is difficult to show up at church. It's difficult to show up at church when you don't have a specific friend group. When you walk in and you see a few people and you go, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. There are people who show up every week in this church. They don't have that yet. Gift them that. In the name of Jesus Christ, gift them that. So welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you speaks to our treatment of one another. Let me shift the focus for a second. What about your welcome of Jesus? How do you welcome Jesus? Do you welcome him uh, like Simon or the sinner? Do you welcome Jesus like you've been given a life-altering gift or a nice parting gift from a party? This is just for your own personal reflection. What is the level of warmth Again, the handshake, the smile, the hug, the come on in, here's the coat rack, get some to drink. All of it can look the same on the outside. But sit with this question for a bit. How do we welcome Jesus? What's the measure? What, is it, what does it feel like? The dinner party welcome and the interesting interruption prompts Jesus to tell this little story. And this little story is all about debt and debtors. So this question is, how do you manage your debt? Romans 3.23 says what? All have sinned and fall short of, of the glory of God. That means morally we are all in debt. Jesus draws in both of these people with a story. And the point is this, no matter who you are, whether you're 50 days worth of hard labor away from paying it off or 10 times that, the point is this, you're unable to pay your debt. And in this story, the one in authority, the money lender, forgives, cancels out the debt. Let me stir your attention to the nature of all debt for a moment. Not Jesus debt, not Bible debt, not debt you would talk about on a Sunday morning in church. Just think about debt for a moment. It is silly to forgive yourself of a debt. Well, I just need to learn to forgive myself that $30,000 on my credit card. 
It'll make all things better. Nonsense. It's also silly to have other people around you forgive you unless they're the one that you owe. It's great that your friends forgive you for being an idiot and racking up all kinds of debt. Good job. That doesn't take away your debt. You still need to go to Financial Peace University. You've got to get this thing figured out. You guys know where I'm going with this. Morally, don't we, don't we have this message promoted to us all the time? I can't possibly forgive people who've, who've, who've wronged me until I forgive myself. That is promoted, preached, sung about, talked about, written about extensively. And just getting your head around who owes whom what cuts to the bottom line of how utterly silly that is. Debt is against a specific someone, and only he or she has the authority to release you from your debt. All debt costs either the one who pays it back or the one who eats the loss and cancels the debt. I show up at your house. You heard this sermon, so you welcome me really, really well. I feel it. In my exuberance of telling a story, I knock over your favorite lamp. It shatters. Here's what happens. I just sinned. I just erred. I missed the mark. I shouldn't have done that. I say the polite thing to do, and I mean it. I say, man, I I owe you one. I, I owe you a lamp. To which you respond. No, don't worry about it. To which I respond, are you sure? To which you respond, I'm sure. We're good. What just happened in that little exchange as the least I can do is help you clean up your favorite lamp. I'm really sorry about that. I get a little excited sometimes. Sorry. What just happened in that little exchange was this. Sin was committed against someone, and that someone, that very specific someone, namely the owner of the lamp, forgave that sin. Was it costly to someone? Absolutely. The person who just did the forgiving either has to go buy another favorite lamp or track down because it's a unique one-of-a-kind item. That's why it's their favorite lamp. Or they eat the loss of not having their favorite lamp. Does that make sense? Sin always costs someone. We don't just get off with no increment of loss. I'm driving it to this, that the ultimate cost of sin in God's moral universe is death. Jesus' death on the cross is what theologians called, uh, call penal substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Well, go look it up in your systematic theology book, Google it, or here's what it basically means. Every time in the scriptures you see that Christ died for sinners, means that he was a substitute on our behalf. Not for his benefit, but for our benefit. In just a moment, I'm going to dismiss you to communion. The way communion is going to work this morning is this. You're going to get to come up and take the elements here. And then as the band plays over the next three songs, I want you to use this sanctuary as just that a place of sanctuary for your soul. On the walls are written several verses that discuss this very idea that Christ died for sinners. That means Christ died in our place. The second thing you'll see is this. There are six lists. They're exactly the same list. When you get to a list that answers this question, what did Jesus accomplish by dying on a cross? 
So you may want to take your elements and you may want to just walk around and ponder some of these things. We're going to just feed you with sort of a a picture of some of the scriptures that talk about these things. And when you're ready, you can take communion where you are or back at your seat, whichever you would choose. You see, God satisfies his own need for justice through willingly punishing his son, Jesus. You grasp this and you will never be the same. This takes root in your life. It will actually, it will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's how Jesus says it in the Gospels. So I close with this question. How deep is your love? What Jesus is doing is he's contrasting two kinds of love, two levels of love. And the difference is seen in their understanding of the needs they have met. I've said this before, but this fits really well here. Imagine that you're drowning and someone from the beach swims out to you. They tell you to roll over. They get you in what feels like a headlock at first and then they safely get you back to safety. They fall on the beach exhausted. Your life is saved. A crowd has formed. Channel 4 News comes out. It's a big deal. They're your hero. They saved your life. Isn't it true that You would quite possibly have an anniversary dinner. If you're a thoughtful person, you'd say, you know what? Um, That guy Mark was really nice and a really good swimmer. I'm glad he was fit that day and saw me and came and rescued me. Let's have Mark over to dinner on the one-year anniversary of my life being saved because my life was forever changed. And it goes so well that you decide to do that every year. And then on Mark's birthday, you commemorate his birthday by sending him a little gift or a note or a thoughtful thing or whatever else. You see, Mark being your hero and saving your life would probably settle into some kind of routine of that, that you commemorate a couple of, couple of days out of the year. You would say, man, on a really bad day, <laughs> Mark came and, and rescued me out of that. That's how many people treat Jesus Christ. They come on his birthday, that's Christmas. They come and do a big celebration at Easter, That's the hero day. That's the anniversary of the day that he did something for me on my really bad day. I had a really off day. Shouldn't have been swimming. I'm going to own that. The Bible says that not only is Jesus our hero, but Jesus paved the way at great personal cost so that God could welcome us into his family. We're actually all adopted. It's not just that we had one bad day. It's that we had a hopeless existence that was only getting worse and we had zero power or even knowledge that life could be different. And so at great personal cost to himself, he came and not only rescued us, but he welcomes us into our family. All of a sudden we get a picture of why some people come twice a year and why some go, I don't just come 52 times a year to church. I think about Jesus every single day of my life. When the Bible says pray without ceasing, that's what I do. I just constantly think about this. Why? Because you're family. Imagine you were orphaned somewhere and you were adopted in. Do you think you would think about your mom and dad twice a year? Or do you think the way that you interact with them would affect every single day of your life, even when you move off to college and move out of the house? 
Friends, that is the picture of what God has done for us. He has welcomed us into his family. He will never leave us or forsake us. And that's why as we talk about these things, as we reread the old, old story, as we sing about these truths, as we take communion and gather around this reality, we're moved deeply. We love deeply because we understand our needs so very deeply. Here's the conclusion of this story. The woman's great love showed that she had already received great forgiveness. The language of this passage actually says this, that she already was forgiven. Jesus didn't forgive her in that moment. That's why I read the text this way. When Jesus looks at her, she says, woman, your sins are forgiven. He was making a declarative statement about a pre-existing reality in her life. He didn't say in that moment, right in that moment, because of your great love for me, because you've clearly demonstrated lots and lots of love for me, your sins are forgiven. The language indicates, no, 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 it's already, it's already an existing reality. And then he ties forgiveness and peace together. We just sang this. Your love undeniable. Your peace unexplainable. Romans says it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that same theme we see with Jesus, your faith has saved you. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you close your eyes for a moment, church? I want to invite you to worship with your body right now by getting up out of your chair, by taking the communion elements. Dads, maybe this is going to be a special time on Father's Day. You want to lead your family in communion. Feel free to wander around. Feel free to find some pocket of the sanctuary that you're able to enjoy the music, enjoy what's being sung over you. Wander around and look at these scriptures. Let God speak to you through his living and active word. What I would request is this. If this is something that makes no sense to you because you're not a follower of Jesus, I would plead with you, stay seated. At least don't come take communion. Maybe it's something that God would speak in this moment as you read and you gain an understanding not only of your desperate need, but of the great personal cost and gift that Jesus offers through his son, Jesus Christ. And maybe these scriptures would speak to you. Can I say this, that if in this moment you say, Lord, I believe I receive that. This is what I want. I yield control. Then welcome to the family. Come and take your first communion that has meaning. Longtime Christian, pray to God and ask for him to stir afresh the welcome you have for him, the love he has for you. Any of our love for him, any depth of love is a response because he first loved us. So let's sing, let's walk around the room and read, let's take communion together.